Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're tuned to the Steve Donahue Show on CPL Radio, your one-stop daily source for Steve's take on the world of books. And now your host, the book critic who literally reads everything, Steve Donahue. Greetings, fellow patrons with Cedarburg Public Library, and welcome back to the Steve Donahue Show, where we talk about bookish views, news, and reviews to the fullest extent allowed by municipal law. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting off today with a memory. I'm remembering first thing this morning, right at the crack of dawn, uh, when I was reading on the couch. I was doing a combination of finishing up the night's reading, which had nothing to do with the subject we'll be talking about today, and also looking on the iPad at the news and reading of the dire prognostications for wildfires in California this year. The governor of California mentioning that he has hundreds of separate known fires that are raging right at this moment. And that, of course, many of which bear the likelihood of combining with each other and growing into mega fires like the ones we saw last year and the year before that. And uh, after a while <laughs> of detoxing from the night's reading and of reading that kind of news, it was time uh, to strap on a pair of clogs and go out walking. <laughs> so I, <clears throat> I harnessed the little dog and we went out for a walk in the very early morning hours before uh, the plague-reduced traffic had begun to accumulate anywhere in my neighborhood before the perennial construction had resumed anywhere in my neighborhood, when the world, in other words, was quiet. It wasn't quite raccoon and possums still out quiet. We have been out in that kind of, of uh, pre-dawn moments, and they have their own beauty. But it was still completely quiet, and we were able to just enjoy each other's company. And while we were walking along, with the, the dew cool grass was, you know, uh, flicking at my feet and at her feet, uh, a thought came upon me. <laughs> it came upon me completely unbidden, but I couldn't keep it out. And that thought was, this doesn't feel anymore like a summer morning. Despite the news about wildfires, despite the, the seasonal nature of the hurricane season hyping up, uh, despite what will certainly be warm and humid temperatures at the height of the day everywhere in the country, there was still a hint of autumn 
there was still a feeling that reminded me on that early morning dog walk that we are approaching the last week of August. And no matter what, no matter how bad it gets, no matter how dry it gets, no matter how hot and humid it gets, the seasons here in the Northern Hemisphere in North America are changing. It's actually, no matter what it might feel like, approaching late summer. And uh, that was a weird feeling and a bit melancholy. But one thing that late summer always provokes for me is a set of complicated memories involving Cape Cod. Now, uh, my fellow patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library, situated right there on the scenic shores of Lake Michigan, may not be firsthand familiar with Cape Cod. If you picture the state of Massachusetts, the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the greatest state in the Union by a wide and noticeable margin, <laughs> as a rectangle, then all the way at, the, at one end of the rectangle, at the eastern end, there is a fishhook that extends 30 miles out into the Atlantic Ocean. That's 350 square miles of land, and that fish hook is Cape Cod, uh, which was uh, the site of the booming of the American fishery industry 150, 170 years ago. That was its first claim to fame and the first thing that made it a mecca for money. Of course, the fishing industry moved north and the fishing produce industry moved south to New York and so did all the major shipping lanes on the major harbors. Those were glory days, and those glory days, those particular glory days for the Cape are over. Uh, but Cape Cod has since become another kind of mecca. It is a vacation mecca. It uh, has a small but steadily growing population during the off-season, and during the summer, the numbers boom. They quintuple or sextuple or septuple uh, with tourists who, some, many of whom build mansions and renovate houses and condos and whatnot that they only occupy during the week's that they are there for the summer. All the rest of the time they rent them out or they leave them empty. Um, and long before Cape Cod became the kind of signature, really elaborate Disney-style uh, vacation mecca that it is today, it was a more or less normal place. It still swelled a great deal during summertime with tourists, but the rents weren't astronomical. Normal people could live there year-round. And there were many, many seasons where I spent a huge amount of time on Cape Cod. Many seasons before that, I had vacationed there with my family. And even when those days were over, I kept going back to Cape Cod. I know every inch of the place from down Cape to up Cape. I know every inch of sand dune and... Uh, pine tree cops and all of the scenic ponds that dot Cape Cod uh, and every stretch of beach and the, the different natures and tenors of all of them. And in addition to all of that, to all of that time spent tramping all over that fishhook with any number of beagles, uh, I've also done a huge amount of Cape Cod reading. It's virtually impossible not to. In, in the modern era, Cape Cod has always been home to a wide variety of great, salty, old used bookstores. And all of them have a Cape Cod section. Every one, every Cape Cod bookstore used to have a Cape Cod section with standard books in it. Classic accounts of whaling, classic accounts of, from Henry David Thoreau all the way up uh, of people encountering the Cape. It brings out in writers, a vast number of writers have visited and stayed, a kind of eloquence, a kind of uh, almost rhetorical ecstasy that a lot of other places do not evoke. <laughs> and that's the simplest way to put it. It's not meant to be a slight to Niagara Falls or, or, uh, or the Great Lakes or anything like that. But 
the cape tends to bring out a kind of eloquence, a kind of outspoken ecstasy in its authors that you'd be hard-pressed to find it in other places. Uh, and it has for a very long time, which means that there's ample anthology, anthology material. And those books are always there. They're always on hand. If they're not at bookstores at the Cape, they will be at whatever house you rent. If you rent a house from someone who is maybe on island during the summer or during the winter and fall, uh, that house is always going to have a collection of salt-stiffened books. <laughs> you, as a guest, are perfectly free to add to that collection. You may not take away from it. Uh, and you will, from house to I've seen many, many of these houses as a guest and as a tenant, and you will see many of the same books there. And uh, that combination always hits me right at the moment that I experienced this morning when the summer is just by a tiny flicker ending. When it's just barely perceivable that the raging heat and humidity, the wonderful brazen warmth of summer might be thinning just a little, even at its thickest points. Every time I have that feeling, it happens every year that I'm in the North, that I'm in North America. And every time that I have that feeling, I immediately flash back to the Cape. Now I've been to the Cape in all seasons, in all weathers. I've been in high summer surrounded by tourists. I've been in the middle of winter including in the old days when there were very few ferries and almost no planes that came in. And when the island, the, the, when the, the outer Cape just emptied out of people in the winter, I've been to the Cape and known it in all its moods, in all its weathers and loved it equally in all times. But, uh, all of my strongest memories come from the melancholy that accompanies the realization that summer is ending. Summer is the Cape's season. Really? I mean, it's beautiful and inviting and wonderful in all seasons, but summer is its glory. And there is a particular kind of longing that happens on the porches and the beaches and the pond sides at the Cape when summer is ending. Uh, and I felt that this morning. And it put me in mind not only of the place, but of all those books. Uh, and I thought that I would share with you some readings from some Cape authors, just because that's the thing that's dwelling on my mind today, and it is book-related. Because, well, <laughs> not to uh, not to depress our Steve Donahue show episode too much. Of course, you can tell just by listening to me that I'm not a very depressed type of person. But the simple truth is I will probably never return to Cape Cod. I will probably never see it again. And that simple truth just underscores the fact that if I'm going to experience it, I'm going to experience it in books. And so when I have that late, that mid-August feeling on the, in the cool of a morning, it's going to involve books as much as it is memories or the place itself. So I thought I would read to you from some of the writings that, ha that the Cape has inspired over the years. And I want to start off with the person who probably to non-Capers, to, to, to people who don't know Cape Cod is probably the uh, the most recognizable name. Certainly wrote the most the most reprinted book. And that is Henry Beston, who wrote The Outermost House, uh, which is the one Cape Cod book that that stands a good chance, a better than 50% chance, of having found its way into the hands of even someone who has never set foot in Massachusetts. Uh, and I want to read you a passage of his where he talks about uh, one of the imposing natural features of Cape Cod that sticks with you long after you've forgotten the ice cream cone prices or the rudeness of that particular tourist or uh, even the antics of 
sandpipers that you happen to watch all morning. <laughs> and that is uh, the interplay of the sea. It's inescapable. The Cape is a spit of land that has a relatively tranquil harbor on one side and the raging of the ocean on the other side. And Beston, of course, noticed this. If you spend any amount of time in an old, especially unweatherized Cape house, especially if you're close to the shore, you will notice it. You can't help it. It gets the very sound of it. This booming threnody of the ocean works its way into your muscles and bones, not in a necessarily bad way, certainly in a tenacious way. Every time that I have ever spent a protracted amount of time at Cape Cod and then left that sound and come back to Boston or anywhere else to the wilds of Iowa, anywhere where that sound is not present, boy, oh boy, do you feel it leeching out of you day by day as it as the echoes fade. Uh, but Beston writes about that. He writes about that omnipresent sound. Uh, and in, the, in this passage, this is the passage. Uh, every mood of the wind, every change in the day's weather, every phase of the tide... All these have subtle sea musics, all their own. Surf of the ebb, for instance, is one music. Surf of the flood, another. The change in the two musics being most clearly marked during the first hour of a rising tide. With the renewal of the tidal energy, the sound of the surf grows louder. The fury of battle returns to it as it turns again on the land. And beat and sound change with the renewal of the war. Sound of surf in these autumnal dunes, the continuousness of it, the sound of endless charging, endless incoming and gathering, endless fulfillment and dissolution, endless fecundity and endless death. I have been trying to study out the mechanics of that mighty resonance. The dominant note is the great spilling crash made by each arriving wave. It may be hollow and booming. It may be heavy and churning. It may be a tumbling roar. The second fundamental sound is the wild, seething cataract roar of the wave's dissolution and the rush of its foaming waters up the beach. This second sound, diminuendo. The third fundamental sound is the endless dissolving hiss of the inmost slides of foam. The first two sounds reach the ear as a unisonance, the booming impact of the tons of water and the wild roar of the uprush blending. And this mingled sound dissolves into the foam bubble hissing of the third. Above the tumult, like birds, fly wisps of watery noise, splashes and countersplashes, whispers, seethings, slaps, and chucklings, an overtoned sound of other breakers mingled with general rumbling, fells earth and sea and air. And you get a sense there of the, of the kind of, uh, of resonance that I'm talking about, the way that the Cape will work on some of its writers to bring out an almost biblical uh, role in their own prose. Uh, and I have uh, another example of that that I want to give you uh, before we move on to other aspects of Cape literature uh, that I want to introduce you to. Just just briefly, we could go on all day with quotes about Cape literature. Uh, but this is uh, another uh, signature Cape Cod writer, John Hay, who wrote a small shelf worth of Cape Cod books, all of which will be available in, in – uh, bloated and salt-stained covers uh, in those Cape Cod book uh, bookstores. And here he also is talking about water, about the, the, the omnipresence and mul the multitude of moods of water on Cape Cod. And this is, this is his passage. Uh, water created it in the first place. Uh, when the last enormous glacier melted back, leaving its indiscriminate load of rubble out in the sea, it had also created a profusion of holes, basins, gullies, the kettles, which are now dry or semi-dry hollows, bogs, or still holding water as ponds and lakes and valleys, 
broad and the narrow runs with outlets to the sea. At one time, Cape Cod must have been streaming with water like a whale's back when it rises to the surface. Now many of the original streams, rivers, and ponds are wholly or in part dried out. But without too much imagination, you can fill the landscape with water all over again. Scientific exactitude, geological reconstruction, make it possible to confirm your sense of the place as full of remnant and abiding fluidity. There's hardly a piece of land on the entire peninsula that does not suggest this. It is water thousands of years behind, water inseparable from the motions of the future, a power roaring in and destroying, pushing, grinding, ebbing back. It is water in the rain, water in the deep, still ponds, water in the underground darkness, in the gentle seaward running streams, in the tidal estuaries and marshes, lowering and flooding over, as sleet or snow in the icy gales full of how the howling emptiness of the winter sea, when the cold metal of the wind pounds on your back and cuts at your face as it sweeps down the semi-frozen sands of the beach where the green and white surf fumes in, rolling and churning with, imp with impersonal passion. And there you get a sense from that, if you didn't already, if you didn't already send it to yourself, I'll gladly point it out to you that that is obviously written by someone who has experienced winter on Cape Cod. It's a very unforgiving place. Uh, but it can be idyllic. And that's not just a product of the modern vacation sentimentality. People have been kicking back and relaxing at Cape Cod for a very long time. Cape Codders, especially long-time multi-generational families, don't like to admit that part of their existence. They still like to think of themselves as just ordinary, hard-working farming folk. But nevertheless, Cape Cod is a beautiful place. In addition to everything else, in almost all of its moods, it is heartrendingly beautiful. And there is a different, a different tone to the blue of the air as a result of it being a, a thin peninsula with water on both sides. And uh, that has caused people to take it easy at the Cape over the years in many different forms, many different ways. And one of the most charming evocations of that is a chapter in a book called The House on Nosset Marsh by Wyman Richardson, who was a, a doctor who, who came to the Cape regularly, to uh, an old building that's still standing, you can still go and see it, called The, uh, the Little Farmhouse. And he wrote a book that, that he collected a bunch of columns that he had written about the little farmhouse into a book. And that book is incredible. And one of its most famous chapters is called The Do-Nothing Day, in which Richardson describes just exactly that. How sometimes, despite your best laid plans, despite all the, the, the uh, projects that you've laid out for a given day at the Cape, the day will dawn and suddenly you will realize that it is, in fact, a do-nothing day. It is a day in which no one wants to do much of anything. <laughs> and he writes all about it in loving detail, the things that happen on a do-nothing day. And he concludes it this way. With the end of dinner and the inevitable cleanup afterwards, do-nothing day is about over. A long nap is in order, from which we wake up relaxed and contented. We may take the car to Round Pond to see if it holds any teal, or to catch a glimpse of a deer coming down for a sip of water. Or we may drive over to the west shore to watch the sunset. A light supper of soup, toast, and jam satisfies everybody. Afterwards, a small fire in the fireplace feels pleasant. The northwest wind has died out, the air has a distinct fall tinge, and the stars are very bright and clear. When we take our last outdoor observation before going to bed, we find a bright show of northern lights. For a while, we stand and watch the shimmering streamers suddenly shoot up towards the zenith, as they suddenly disappear. At one end of the arc, an orange-yellow color appears. At the other, over, the near, over near the house, the color becomes almost blood-red. 
We begin to shiver, and it means the end of the day for us. One by one, we disappear into our respective bedrooms. The last to go blows out the lamps and stands for a moment before the fireplace, while the flickering light of the dying fire casts an enormous shadow against the ceiling. Yes, we have all kinds of days here at the farmhouse. They are all good, but one of the best is the do-nothing day. <laughs> and that's from 1947, hence the talk about uh, no central heating and whatnot. Uh, and that is just charming, and, uh, and uh, I confess that when I am most nostalgic for the Cape, I go back to the house at Nossett Marsh and read, to my heart's content, a, ca a Cape Cod book that reflects not only the Cape Cod that I have left behind, but the Cape Cod that time has left behind since the, it, that kind of living on the Cape is largely a thing of the past. Uh, but just to, to wrap up for today, I want to wrap up with a very famous Cape Cod piece. I won't read you the whole thing, but it is absolutely wonderful. It is as, uh, as uh, Robert Finch, another great Cape Cod writer, has pointed out, it has been copied out and taped to refrigerators everywhere on Cape Cod for many, many years. It's by Mary Louise Weissman. And it's called Letter to My Summer House Guests. <laughs> uh, and it starts out with another peaceful summer season has passed here in our cottage on the bay in Cape Cod. And I want to take this opportunity to thank you for being such perfect guests and to reiterate the house rules so that your visit next summer may prove to be an even greater success. <laughs> the sarcasm here should be noted. Uh, this is this essay, this little comic squib reflects on the horrifying reality that has always plagued people who actually have houses at the Cape, which is that they are constantly a hostelry for an endless caravan of guests who, who don't have much to say to them during the rest of the year, but suddenly want to be best buddies when they realize you have a house on the Cape. Uh, one, so now Mary Louise Weissman, uh, Mary Lou Weissman moves on to an itemized list of things to consider about being a guest. Uh, item number one is the house gift. It is necessary to bring a small offering, preferably a large cooked meal which can be eaten cold with the fingers. A hatchback full of zucchini from your garden is not welcome and is considered a hostile, provocative act. A new blender is an especially thoughtful idea. Last summer's blender, you will remember, burned itself out in a valiant five-speed attempt at pesto sauce. This is probably as good a time as any to let you know that I lied about the chewy little white chunks that clung to the linguine. They were not unosterized pignola nuts. <laughs> a white rubber spatula also makes a nice house gift. Uh, under the heading of what to bring, she writes, you will need a bathing suit, a toothbrush, dental floss in case of native corn, your own sunblock, and proof of passage back to where you came from. Travel lightly. Steamer trunks will be confiscated. Yours is not to be a visit of 19th century duration. I am not Jane Austen. And under meals, we're told, after the traditional welcoming corn on the cob and lobster dinner, further meals will not be provided. Do not be fooled by the splendor of this meal or the graciousness of your hostess. You are on hospitality death row. Make the most of it. Let me butter your corn. Let me crack your claws. Do not offer to help me clean the table. Defy my martyrdom by the merest hint of rising from your place, and I will slam you back into your chair. By Saturday breakfast, before the, your zinnias, which I have picked for you and placed on the night table in happy anticipation of your Friday night arrival, have begun to wilt, you will find yourself on your culinary own. You may have been coddled on Friday night, but by Saturday morning, you are undone. <laughs> the coffee is in the refrigerator, and I like mine black. <laughs> and then uh, the, the, there are notes that go on and on, and then we conclude with off-season communication. If I should, in the course of speaking with you during the winter months, prove to be suffering from short-term memory loss and invite you once again for the next visit, 
please be good enough not to remind me of it next spring. <laughs> and, and a little Cape Cod note that the natives aren't always as hospitable as the, as the travel brochures would have you believe. <laughs> and there you go. That is the, the summon essence of our, uh, of our episode of the Steve Donahue show today is a fond look through books at Cape Cod, which is always on my mind at the end of summer. Uh, so I'm going to close the episode on that note, and uh, I will see you tomorrow. And in the meantime, I hope you have a very bookish day. <laughs> Thank you, fellow patrons of the Cedarburg Public Library. The Steve Donahue Show is a production of CPL Radio, a service of the Cedarburg Public Library located in Cedarburg, Wisconsin. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.